you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say, yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Hey, on Tuesday, yeah, we are doing Families in the Park uh, on that public holiday, but that public holiday is Anzac Day, uh, and I think it would be remiss of us not to um, at least spend one quick moment um, just uh, making sure that our, our hearts, our minds are orientated towards um, you know, honouring, uh, thinking about uh, those who gave their lives for us in service, uh, the many uh, men and women who are serving our, in our Defence Forces across Australia right now um, and in all our different uh, realms of authorities and uh, helping to keep our nation safe. Um, and so uh, this morning I want to pray, uh, pray for, um, or pray, I guess, towards Anzac Day uh, and then also pray that God would help us as we come to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we commend to your gracious care and keeping all the men and women in our armed forces, at home and abroad. Defend them day by day with your heavenly grace. Strengthen them in their trials and temptations and give them courage to face the perils that beset them and help them to know that nothing can separate them from your love in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the many men and women who bravely gave their lives in past conflicts so that our nation might remain safe and free. Help us to honour their sacrifice by living good and quiet lives for your glory. We thank you for the powerful reminder during Anzac Day that Jesus, our Saviour, died sacrificially on our behalf to defeat our greatest enemy. And we thank you for our time together this morning and pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might know you, trust you and glorify you with every part of our lives to the praise of your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we all have those friends or family members that we are sure will mess with our plans. Uh, no matter how much advanced warning or how early we might try to book them in, they always seem to be the ones running late or holding up plans or they cancel last minute and throw the whole ordeal out the window. If you're thinking to yourself right now, I don't have those friends, you're the friend. You're the one who's always late or cancelling. Uh, and it's interesting how we, we try to find strategies even to help these people. We book them in months in advance and send calendar reminders. Uh, or in the case of people being habitually late, we tell them earlier times to turn up to things. Uh, my nan, I hope she doesn't get to hear, listen to this podcast, uh, she is terrible for this. And so my entire family now know that we need to tell her 30 minutes earlier is the time that we need to be somewhere, knowing full well that we'll still be 20 minutes late uh, to where we're trying to go, but that's just a way to make it work for us. Um, so, you know, while we can laugh about that now, this sort of behaviour, it can actually have consequences in our relationships and it can cause tensions in friendships uh, and sometimes even make us lose trust in people. And this really is at the core of our text this morning, Paul is concerned to defend his trustworthiness. Now, whether or not the members in the Corinthian church had lost trust in Paul is hard to tell, but at the very least, those who were trying to tear Paul's reputation down were using uh, his change in itinerary and using this whole situation as ammunition against his good character. And so in chapter, uh, sorry, in 2 Corinthians, chapter 112 through to chapter 2, verse 17, Paul addresses this whole situation. But what is interesting 
is that he doesn't just address the problem and make up excuses, but he gives thorough explanations for why his plans have changed. And these explanations are not just informative, he's not just he's telling us why things happened, but as we'll see, uh, they're also instructional for the Corinthians and for you and me this morning. But before jumping into Paul's reasons for uh, his plans changing, check out firstly what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read or and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Here he pretty much gives us the thesis statement for the entire letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, this entire section is bookended by uh, this statement at the beginning uh, and also chapter 2, verse 16, where he rhetorically asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? And ultimately, throughout this letter, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians that his conscience is clean, not so much because um, of his greatness, but because of what God is working in him through the gospel not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, as he says there in verse 12. And this will result in himself and those he ministers to boasting in Jesus Christ, the only one worthy of boasting in. And that's what we need to keep in mind this morning as we work through this text. We'll probably, hopefully, notice Paul's motives right throughout the section that he is about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did. All of his decisions, his very motivation is the gospel going out. And so much like movements in a drama or a story or maybe your friends who continue to make up these uh, weird and wonderful excuses that seem to take on these incredible, elaborate um, storylines, we actually will notice Paul actually make his way through three movements to help the Corinthians understand why things changed for him and why his character is not to be called into question in this sense. So movement the first. Read, that's just a note for me, read 2 Corinthians, brother. (laughs) Let's read 2 Corinthians, verse 15 to 18. Uh, Paul continues on, he says, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So the issue Paul first addresses is what seems to be his dodgy itinerary. Uh, And some at Corinth, probably those who are trying to destroy his reputation, decided to use this as fodder uh, for getting more of the Corinthian church on their side, accusing Paul of being disingenuous in his plans. So what actually happened? Well, originally, Paul mentions his desire to come to Corinth twice. 
Um, we actually first read about his desire to come to Corinth back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, in verse 5 to 11. I'm not going to read that now, but let me summarise sort of the, the issues with his itinerary. We've got this map, uh, which this week is actually genuinely helpful. Um, so Paul wanted to come to Corinth from Macedonia after Ephesus. Uh, during this time, he sends the letter of 1 Corinthians that we have uh, with one of his uh, associates, Timothy, to the church in Corinth. Timothy brings a negative report back to Paul uh, that there were issues going on, and Paul then makes an emergency trip to Corinth, uh, known as the painful visit, which we'll read about in a moment. Uh, and this is when he told them, so in this emergency visit, this, point, this is when he told them he's going to come back to them twice. So he wanted to come, he wanted to come from uh, Troas, which is up in the top there, uh, across to Corinth, down in there, and then back up to Macedonia, and then back through to Corinth, and then he would finish his missionary journey coming back to Judea over here. Um, however, after the painful visit, he reconsiders this. And so from Macedonia, he writes the letter called the Severe Letter, which we don't have a copy of today. Um, and uh, it's, it's, we'll read about that in a second. It was genuinely severe, even hard for Paul to write, but probably harder for the Corinthians to hear. However, when he finally gets to meet Titus in Macedonia, Titus reports positive changes off the back of that letter, and Paul then writes two Corinthians, uh, which we have here, to further encourage the church and deal with these false apostles. And so a little bit later, we'll see in chapter 2, verse 12 to uh, 13, where Paul talks about uh, he wanted to meet Titus in Troas, but he couldn't find him in Troas instead. Instead, instead of going straight from Troas to Corinth, he went from Troas up to Macedonia. That's where he met Titus, got the good report that the severe letter had done its gospel work in the church. And so from up there, he writes uh, two Corinthians that we have today. And so you could imagine these false apostles, these super apostles, these people trying to tear down Paul's reputation in Corinth. They could be saying things to the Corinthian church like, how can we trust Paul's word? How can we trust Paul's gospel if he can't even stay true to his plans, if he can't live an authentic life? Why should these Corinthians trust anything that Paul says if he can't even keep a simple commitment to turn up when he says he will? Now, I don't think we have to work too hard to imagine the relational damage that this could have had. As I mentioned in my introduction, we all have those people in our lives and uh, those who are late to everything or always cancel last minute. And sometimes it genuinely does cause damage to our relationships. It, we struggle to trust those people. The English poet Samuel Johnson once wrote, there can be no friendship without confidence and no confidence without integrity. So Paul doubles down on his integrity, his reasons for the change of plans. It isn't because he was vacillating, which means uh, wavering between options, uh, but he defends his integrity. He says that he didn't say yes and no in the same breath. He isn't double-tongued. He isn't trying to people-please, uh, but because his word and his life is founded upon God's Faithfulness, And he makes this really interesting move to not try and just defend his own character through his own faithfulness, but he defends his character through God's faithfulness and his being gospel-shaped by God's 
faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his own promises as secured through the work of Jesus. The commentator George Guthrie helpfully explains, he says, Paul suggests that his personal faithfulness stands grounded in the very faithfulness of God, his mission, his decisions, his pattern of life, and therefore his words are not perfect, but they so rest on the bedrock of the character of God and are so in sync with God's gospel that Paul can speak of the integrity of his words and commitments with the utmost confidence. Paul is so shaped by the gospel that his very life and character are now gospel-shaped. As Guthrie notes, this doesn't mean that Paul is perfect, but it means that the gospel is the primary shaper of who Paul is. And that's a good word for you and me today. In our world of instant information, of immersive content, we can stream whatever we want, whenever we want. There is a tendency for you and me to be shaped and formed, not by the gospel, but by all the other voices and cultural information available. And I think it's evident in our society. One direct application from this text today is a word against our individualism. As the culture around us has become more and more individualistic, so we in the church are also being shaped by that individualism. And our lens for a gospel-shaped community has shrunk. We make choices about our comfort, our opportunities, our family, before we make choices for the sake of the gospel. And to be honest with you, I really feel the challenge of Paul's words here. Even though he's not throwing out a direct challenge from the text, God's working through this text, through this situation to uh, give us this example that cuts against our grain. Because I'm certainly tempted to put my own comfort first, to be the, the type of person who vacillates on decisions based on how I feel. But this word for us today is that we are called to live in a way that shines the gospel. If our Lord and Saviour didn't say yes and no in the same breath, if he, if he was true to his word, we also can be true to our word. Because as Paul is trying to illustrate, the integrity of the gospel is actually at stake upon our integrity towards others. Paul then goes on to show how the gospel is foundation, uh, sorry, is the foundation to our integrity. He leans upon God's faithfulness in the gospel through Jesus's yes. And as he does this as the bedrock of his own integrity. So as Jesus gives his yes to all the promises of God in the gospel, so Paul's, Timothy's and Silas's word is yes because of Jesus's yes. Paul then, in a sense, reminds the Corinthians what Jesus's yes means. Because Jesus, through his death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection, has given the ultimate yes to God's promises of salvation to sinners. We can be encouraged that this same faithful God is working. God's ongoing work of strengthening his people has its bedrock foundation in God's original work of grace in their lives. That work of the Spirit through the gospel, as George Guthrie notes. 
Church, we are held in God's promises and shaped in God's ways through the gospel. Paul then moves to his next movement where he shows uh, that by the gospel, he has been shaped to see the seriousness of sin, but also the effectiveness of the gospel. So movement, the second. Uh, This next section of 2 Corinthians 1, 23, all the way through to 2 verse 4, uh, reveals Paul's heart. And there's a bit more context here about why he changed his ministry plans. It was to spare them that he made up his mind not to make another painful visit, as he says in those first couple of verses of chapter 2. Instead, he writes a letter, which scholars have called the severe letter or the the letter of tears, or uh, as William Barclay, a a pastor and commentator, says, it's a, a letter that Paul wrote with a sore heart and tears streaming out of his eyes. He writes this letter, which he says he wrote in much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, as verse two, verse, sorry, chapter 2, verse 4 says, that they would know the abundant love that Paul has for them. This abundant love shaped by the gospel, by the God of love, leads him to land in this next point uh, that we're going to look into and read together, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through to 11, where he says, Now if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. As we read this passage, we should be struck, as Paul obviously is, by the seriousness of sin. That the church community must take sin seriously. It must be dealt with. And this, once again, grates against our modern sensibilities. We detest the idea of someone or a group of people telling us what we should do. We detest the idea that someone might call me out for the way that I'm living my life. And unfortunately, we are much like the culture around us, much more comfortable to let things lie or even affirm sinfulness in the church. Now, in this particular instance, commentators debate uh, which brother Paul is referring to. Um, some believe it's the, the brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who is uh, with his father's wife. And so uh, Paul uh, gave quite a heavy instruction of church discipline against that particular guy. Um, and other commentators believe that it's uh, actually uh, sort of like a ringleader for those who were opposing Paul's apostleship. And so Paul uh, called the church in Corinth to discipline that brother uh, rather severely by excommunicating him from the church. Um, and so here, though, um, we, we see that Paul uh, has seen that they've done that well. They have listened to his instructions and they've done what he says. And so 
He understands the seriousness of sin, but he also understands the effectiveness of the gospel. And so Paul instructs these Corinthians to now forgive, comfort, and welcome back this brother. Otherwise, he might be, as Paul says here, overwhelmed by excessive sorrow or literally like a picture image of being swallowed up by sorrow. The gospel has been effective, even through the means of church discipline. God has worked through this church, through his spirit and saved this brother. And it was time to ensure his forgiveness, time to ensure that this brother felt the warmth of the church community welcoming him back into proper fellowship. Now, this is actually something that myself and our eldership take seriously. In fact, our entire church leadership takes seriously, not because it's a chance to lord it over people, but because it's a, um, a means of genuine gospel love to the church. Now, there are a couple of matters right now that we are, uh, they're live church discipline issues that we are working with people that by God's grace, through this means of church discipline, we are praying to see brothers and sisters repent of sin and be restored. It's not about just casting people into outer darkness and leaving them to figure that out all by themselves. It's about uh, helping to place people in situations where they recognize the seriousness of their sin for the purpose of their coming back to the mercy of God and us as their brothers and sisters in Christ being able to welcome them back in and make sure they know forgiveness in Christ, make sure they know his mercy, but most of all know his warmth uh, that all of us should experience as the brothers and sisters in Christ together. So here Paul, once again, he points to the sufficiency of the gospel. As Paul has been forgiven by Christ in the gospel, so Paul has forgiven. And Paul has also done this for the Corinthians' sake, as verse 10 tells us, that they might see his example, but also notice his gospel character. As I mentioned at the beginning, Paul is not defending himself based upon his own reputation, but because of the gospel, because of what God has worked in Paul, and this is yet another example. God's forgiveness to us in Christ should result in our forgiveness of brothers and sisters in our church community. Because as Paul says in verse 11, to finish out this section, we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. Satan will use our unforgiveness, our bitterness towards one another, our, our um, tolerance of sin in the church to creep in and make that small sin a cancerous effect upon the whole church. The, the enemy will so easily use our bitterness towards other people, the little things that are, uh, the, that imagery of the little fox destroying the vines. It's those little things that sit in our hearts, in our minds. And the only way really for you and I to be made aware of those things is to have brothers and sisters in Christ who call those things out who see when we're being bitter towards someone, unforgiving towards someone. They see when we're holding these little grudges or where uh, our attitude or our tone towards somebody is out of alignment, out of place, and not gospel-shaped or driven. And so we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to point that out. And sometimes we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to take that to the next level where the, the pastors and the eldership get involved and they really make sure that this brother or sister knows that they are holding sin, that they are holding unforgiveness or holding bitterness, that they're not giving their sin to God and repenting and turning back towards his mercy. 
And sometimes that needs to be done in a sense of uh, putting a brother or sister outside of the immediate community of faith in order for them to understand the severity of what they are going through right now and to see their need for the mercy of God. Paul then finishes up this whole section with a, a final appeal to friendship and the work of the gospel through God's providential plans. So movement, the third. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. He continues and says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul didn't find Titus as Tro- in Troas, as we mentioned before. And so th- though he was anxious for Titus, Paul preached the gospel because that is what shapes his life. That's what drives him in his life. And it's a beautiful ending to this passage as Paul erupts in praise to God, saying, but thanks be to God. Paul praises God for using even these interrupted plans and his anxious heart to bring about the opportunities for the gospel to be proclaimed. So Paul's heavy-hearted. He didn't find his brother Titus in Troas. And you could imagine, it's like, it's like you know you're going to meet someone there, but then you don't meet them there. And so now you're worried about their safety. You're worried about where they are. And so Paul, with an anxious heart, I think any of us would forgive Paul for you know, maybe you know, leaving Troas immediately and going to find him or uh, going to do something else, maybe going and crying in a corner, whatever it might be, being concerned and anxious for a friend. But he instead takes the opportunity there to preach the gospel and then moves on from, uh, from Troas to Macedonia so that he can find Titus and all the while finding opportunities to preach the gospel. And it's incredible that he then lands in this final section of verse 14 to 17 uh, with what is called the uh, a Roman Pompa Triumphalus. It's a, a victory parade given for particularly successful Roman generals off the back of multiple battle victories. Now, I won't bore you with all the details um, of these victories, and we were lucky enough to have uh, Gary Miller with us on uh, Monday night with all of our gospel community leaders, and he sort of gave us the whole rundown of what a a, um, pompa triumphalus looked like and why it's important that we get our heads around it. But it's sufficient for our time together this morning to understand that there were these parades, and these parades had victors, they had captives, and they had servants. And Paul is illustrating through this imagery the work of the gospel in and through us. He's saying that we are those who have been captured by God in the gospel. We are being paraded around as those rescued from an enemy, from the enemy of sin and death. But we are also servants in this parade, 
carrying the drums of incense that would be walked down the street either side of these parades that would be spilling out this fragrance of the, um, this parade procession. And this is what we are. We are those who have been captured by God from Satan through the victorious work of Christ in the gospel. And now, as God's people, we carry the incense of the gospel with us everywhere we go. So Paul is saying here, he's, he's saying, even though all of his itinerary plans are messed up, even though he, he wanted to find Titus in Troas and he couldn't do that there, so then he went, took off to Macedonia to try and find Titus, he's saying, thanks be to God, because even through all of that mess, even though he wasn't able to stay true to the original plans he had, because the gospel is the very thing that shapes his life and drives his priorities and drives his purpose, therefore God has used Paul's messed up itinerary no matter uh, the messiness of it, for the proclamation of the gospel, for the gospel to be wafting out everywhere that Paul goes. And you can imagine, like you think about these, uh, these big incense drums going down the sides. Um, you've got this, the big procession going through the street and these servants along the sides carrying these big drums of incense and the, the smell is wafting out over the people. And uh, it's interesting because uh, Paul then goes on to say that to some people it's the smell of life. To people in the street who are seeing their Roman generals come home and they're victorious over their, uh, over their enemies, it's the smell of life. It's the smell of victory, this incense. The whole city can get on board and be excited about it and be passionate about it, but it's also the smell of death to those who have been captive, uh, captured and who are being led to their execution. And in the same way for you and I today, we actually have this in our world. For you and I as God's people, as those who carry these drums of the incense of the gospel, for those whose lives don't just, uh, not just that we can articulate the gospel with our words, but that our entire life uh, beams and shines the gospel, the faithfulness of God to his promises through Jesus Christ. As Paul has been setting up right throughout this, he's not insincere, he's not vacillating in his plans. His life is actually driven and directed by the purpose of the gospel. And so no matter where he ends up, no matter what, like what plans have to change, the reason those things do change is because he is shaped by the gospel for the furthering of the gospel. And for you and I today, that's the challenge, to be those who are carrying the drums, the incense of the gospel in all of our lives, to be, uh, have integrity in our lives as we are proving to the world around us the goodness of our God through the gospel. And Paul here tells us that to some, uh, to those who are in this room this morning who do trust in Jesus, who have been saved and who know that God is the one who has brought them to light and life through Jesus. To us, it is a, the smell of life. It's the smell of victory. It's every Good Friday and Easter Sunday when we get together and remember that our Lord and Saviour died on the cross for us and won victory over sin and death, that we can be raised to life with him as he has been powerfully raised to life. It's that, it's that scent of how good is our God and his mercy towards us. But to those possibly here this morning and those who are in the world around us, uh, this is also possibly the scent of death. For every yes you say, you also imply a no 
to something else. For every no that you say, you also imply a yes to something else. If you say no to the gospel, you're saying yes to death. If you say yes to the gospel, you're saying no to death. And this morning, the challenge for you and I as God's people is to know and recognise that we are taking this sweet-smelling incense into the world around us, that it, it can be the incense of life to people. But in God's providential plans, it can also be the scent of death to some people. And thanks be to God, as he finishes up with verse 16, uh, verse 15b, sorry, verse 16b, where he says, "'Who is sufficient for these things?' Church, thanks be to God that all we are is incense wafters. All we do is carry the gospel into all the world and we let it waft out into the world. It's not up to you or me to decide if that person uh, smells life or if that person smells death. All our job is, is to take the gospel everywhere we go, to be so shaped and formed by the gospel as the Apostle Paul is, that our very purpose, plans, everything about our life is shaped by the gospel going out into all the world. That our comforts, our priorities, our desires would be reformed and reshaped by the gospel. That it wouldn't be about us, but it would be about the gospel going into all the world, that God, through the gospel, would be welcoming brothers and sisters in. And what a beautiful job that is for you and I this morning to be encouraged in. All of these explanations for his itinerary plans point us to a gospel-shaped life. And it should make us ask the question, are we so shaped by the gospel that we ooze it, that we waft the gospel out everywhere we go in everything we do? Is it the very bedrock of our motivations, of our priorities? Do we look, sound and smell like the gospel? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have your word to so powerfully and wonderfully point us to who you are, to teach us who you are, and to powerfully remind us every time we read it that you in your goodness and mercy towards us sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place and you brought him to life powerfully three days later, victorious over our enemy of sin and death. Thank you that you have, for those this morning who have um, placed their trust in Jesus, thank you that we have smelt that sweet victory smell of the gospel. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have helped us to smell it, to breathe it in, to be completely reformed and reshaped by it, that we would continue to bring glory and honour to you as we also take up the... the the job and role of uh, taking the gospel into all the world. And Heavenly Father, this morning, we do pray for our brothers and sisters, either here this morning or those who are in the world around us, our neighbours, our friends, our family members. Heavenly Father, we ask that in your mercy, may they smell the incense of the gospel and choose to live its life, choose to 
smell the sweet fragrance of life, to be totally transformed, to throw their lives upon your goodness. Father, we also know that there are those in our lives who this sense, this incense will only always be the smell of death. Heavenly Father, help us to rest in your sovereignty, to rest in your providential care, to rest in the integrity of your faithful character and goodness and know that you are completely in control, that all your plans are for our good and for your glory. And we pray for these things in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au dot com dot au